Well, I leave uh, Thursday night. I, it's, I forget the exact time, but it's after 7. Next Sunday, when you're here, I'll be in bed uh, getting ready for Monday morning. So uh, it's 11 and a half hours difference between the, here and there. It's uh, 11 and a half hours later there. So, Vizak uh, Vishakhapatnam. Uh, it's Andhra Pradesh. It's on the east coast. Um, about if if you if you start in the south at the south point, you go up about halfway, and that's that's where uh, I'll be. It's a, there's a naval base there, and there's a it's a huge um, steel mill, and uh, they have uh, just an enormous. Um, I don't know quite what to say. Mecha- mechanism to uh, keep coal running through. Uh, so for the steel mill, it's a it's a it's a bustling city. So uh, be there. I'll be back here on the 18th of March. That's I'll be it's Saturday Sunday afternoon, so I won't be in church. I'll still be in the airplane. If you want to get on the airplane and come with me, that's fine. But uh, that'll be the only way I'll get home. In any way, in any case, the biggest concern I have right now is just some layovers at night. Um, in Hyderabad, where, where I land, uh, I, I, I'm not sure where I'm going to spend the night. So it's either in the, um, oh goodness, I can't even think of the language I need, the domestic terminal or the international terminal, and I'm not sure which and, and how and what that's going to mean coming home from Poland. I got to spend the night in a, in a gate at... Uh, Heathrow in London. It was just marvelous, a wonderful opportunity. And so, but that's what uh, such travel is like. So you get used to it. Spent some nights in the Bombay airport. So Hyderabad surely can't be as challenging as Bombay. But uh, <laughs> we're uh, at Romans 12 now. <sighs> uh, began to wonder. I know. <laughs> But let's go back over the book. The book breaks up into two parts, major parts. There's the introduction in chapter 1, 1 to 15. Um, and then part 1, where Paul is addressing the issue of how we relate to God. Um, it's a demonstration of God's grace received by the Roman church, by the Romans, um, in chapters uh, 1 to 8, he is laying out the issue of righteousness by faith, that, that life is lived by faith. Uh, it, we enter life by faith. We live life by faith. The whole of the Christian life is a life of faith. Then in chapters 9 to 11, which we just finished last week, he has to address some questions that that whole discussion raises. What about Israel? Is, isn't their rejection of the gospel an invalidation of your own gospel message, Paul. And if you're right, do they have any future? And if you're right and we can't be separated from the love of God, why are they apparently separated from the love of God? And so he addresses that in chapters 9 to 11. Uh, but, but having gotten through chapter 11 now, he has raised all the basic issues that he needs to raise in order to get to the point of the letter. Uh, and that's Roman 2. Um, and it should have three parts, I know. You, you, a, a standard sermon has always had three points, a poem and a deathbed story. <laughs> Amen? So 
So, uh, but uh, uh, there are only two, as far as I can tell, in Romans. And we come to the practical application of it. But to say that is not to say enough. Um, uh, Paul is, is effectively writing a speech to Rome. If Paul had been able to go there and preach, he would have said these things. Yes? And it's a, it's a persuasive message. The goal is to persuade them about some issues that are going on in Rome. In first century rhetoric, you did two things, well, potentially three things, but two major things. You were either, when you were making a speech, um, trying to persuade them about a problem in the hearers, and the speaker claims to have the solution to the problem. Does that make sense to you? So, uh, or you may be thinking of, as a speaker, a problem that the congregation, the audience has with the speaker. And you're trying to persuade them that, in fact, their analysis of the problem is unsound and they should listen to the way you're presenting the situation. Uh, what we have in Romans is the former kind of rhetoric. All, all rhetoric is, folks, what, what Aristotle said at the beginning is that rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Every one of us tries to persuade people nearly every day of our, of our lives. Is that true? So you have learned, if, if you're a good communicator at all, you have learned over time that there are certain ways to persuade people that work and there are ways that don't. <laughs> yes, so you have adapted the way you, you present your, your ideas to uh, what will best persuade. Am I right? There, there are other reasons for speaking, but for most of Paul's letters, these are the two big issues. He's either trying to persuade them that they have a problem or... Uh, I guess in both of them it is is the case. You have a problem. I have the answer. You need to accept my definition of the problem and my definition of the answer. The other side is I I have a problem because of your attitude toward me. I need to show you why I am I I, I am not in fact guilty of the of the charges you're making. So Second Corinthians would be along that line. In part, Galatians is along that line. But the other of Paul's letters are persuading them about problems in themselves. And we've been pointing out since the beginning of our study that Paul is moving toward a climax. And as he gets to the climax, the climax he really reaches in chapters 14 and 15. And it's it's the longest part of the application section of the book. That in itself ought to tell us something, that he he is working toward a goal and I think the goal, if you turn to chapter 15, I think the, the goal is finally reached in 15.7, where he comes out and says overtly what he wants them to take away, if we have that expression now. What's the takeaway? Well, this is the takeaway for the book of Romans. Yeah, wherefore, receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. So in effect, chapters 1 to 11 are telling us how Christ received us. Then chapters 12, 1 to 15, 13 are telling us how we're to receive one another. So I take the grace of God that I have received and start extending it to people, especially in Romans, to, to other people in the body of Christ. Um, so I have, to, I have to understand if I have received forgiveness, I must be a forgiving person. Yes? If I have received mercy, I must be a merciful person. 
If I have received grace, I must be a gracious person. And the grace must be measured only by the measure of the grace of God I have received. (laughs) So, in chapter 12, 1 and 2, you have an introduction. Uh, You know these verses. These are very famous verses. Um, He says the same thing, but he says it in a different way. That is, he says what he's going to say in 15.7. He says it in a different way in 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you there, I can't quote it except in King James. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may demonstrate, and here I depart somewhat from the King James, that the the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Then he gives us three ways to make our bodies living sacrifices. I have to have my mind transformed or I can't do this. But the transforming should come from chapters 1 to 11, effectively. I'm right now, thanks. Um, the, uh, so so I, I, I must go back to chapters 1 to 11 and remember all that God has done for me. And in light of that, change the way I think about how fellowship in the body of Christ looks, how it works. And, and reorganize my whole way of thinking and therefore my whole way of responding on that basis. In 12.3 to 8, you, you practice spiritual gifting because no spiritual gifting is given for the individual. It's always given for the body of Christ. The whole point of ministry is the building up of the body of Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Then in 12.9 um, through 13.10, he introduces the issue of uh, love without play acting, sincere love, genuine love. In the middle of that, there's a section on, uh, on vengeance. It starts at 1217. Um, yeah, it starts at 1217. It's on vengeance, and it will go through 137. That looks like it's not about love, but it really is. Um, there are two parts of this. One is you forego vengeance because that's, that's God's. God has reserved that for himself. You don't need that. You've got enough on your plate. Am I, am I right? You've got enough to do. So one thing you don't have to do anymore is vengeance. Just leave that off. That's in God's hands. And in 13, 1 to 7, he has reserved that for, or rather, he has delegated that to human government. And so... The government is responsible for vengeance. We don't have to do that. But then he returns in 13.8, and do notice this famous verse again, owe no man anything but to love one another. And let me paraphrase that because in English it sounds like we should have no debts. Uh, but in, if you look back at verse 7, indeed, um, verses 6 and 7, there are debts we have. I, I paid some debts of this sort last Monday. I went to the county tax assessor's office to register my new car. What do you you read in verse 6? Pay your taxes. So I paid my taxes. (laughs) Didn't want to do that, but I have a debt to pay, taxes. But also verse 7, there are debts that we have and we're to pay them. The idea is no outstanding debts. So if I may re-paraphrase 
verse 8, have no outstanding debts that you can't pay off except to love one another. That's the only debt we have that we can't pay off. <clears throat> That's the only debt we ought to have that we, don't, we can't pay off. Your whole debt is to love one another. And so no, notice now that he has returned to that same idea that he had back in chapter uh, 12, verse 9. Yes? And then finally, there's a, verses 11 to 14 in chapter 13, there's a little section of, uh, of exhortation about the urgency of these, of these materials. And then finally, in 15, 1 to thir- uh, I'm sorry, 14, 1 to 15, 13, he says um, that we should learn to accept one another even when we differ with one another about the way the Christian life ought to be lived. Pardon? You almost want to know, like, to what extent? Well, yeah, it's, it, it, we'll talk about it more. But, but the point is, I, I was uh, visiting a church in South Arizona. You don't have to preach on hell there. They knew all about it. <laughs> it, was, it. It was at a copper mining town, and, and the copper mine was so deep that the, the trains that pulled the ore out it was an old Phelps Dodge mine. It had been there for, I don't know how long it had been there. But the trains that brought the ore up to the rim and out looked like smaller than Z-scale trains, if that says anything to you. But they were tiny. And the mountain was as, the hole in the mountain was as deep as it had been high above it before they started the mining operation. Um, <clears throat> the guys worked 27 days on and, t- and two days off at the mine. And so the church told me, we just don't have many men at church. And I said, don't they need fellowship? Well, yeah, they need fellowship. Well, why couldn't you have service at, at shift change? Maybe have service when, uh, when the, the guys are getting ready to go on the shift. They can come in a little early and have a service. Well, can't do that. That's not at the church, and it's not at the proper time. Because 11 o'clock is the holy hour, amen? <laughs> there is no holy time of life except on Sunday morning. Eight, yes? No? Well, what, what if you have a huge medical community in your, t- in your area? And, and do you really want all the nurses off, Ben? You do? <laughs> uh, uh, no, you don't want the... If it's your family member that's in the hospital, you want the nurses there. So why don't we take better account of this and serve the medical community and the police community and the fire community? Are you, are you, am I making sense to you? Well, but that's not holy. <clears throat> These are not things God has commanded. Yeah. So, so this is what, uh, Rachel, this is what this whole section is about. Uh, people with, who just have differences about how the Christian life ought to be lived. Chris? Yeah. So I think that should be. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> uh. Well, maybe not. But I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that more later if I may put it off. Uh, the, if, if you look at 14.1, uh, there are two different translations that are possible for 14.1. Him who is weak to the fa- in the faith, accept, but not, and, and here's. Here's the place where the two different translations come in. Not to, dis- 
not to pass judgment on his opinions, or secondly, for the dis- not to the discussion of doubtful things. And I, the idea of doubtful things is is issues that God has neither commanded nor prohibited. Um, and so, what he's talking about here. And, and that's the latter is, I think, the way I would read it. Uh, some of your translations read a little differently. But the, the idea is that he's, he's talking about eating meat, not even meat sacrificed idols. It's just eating meat. That's First Corinthians. Uh, this is Romans. It's a different book. And all it is is about eating meat. Is it, can you be a, 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 a mature Christian please, pleasing to God and eat meat and I'm glad that was the issue because now I can talk about it and not, not have any emotional baggage tied up in the discussion. But the, the issue is, can you be pleasing to God and eat meat? Well, there were people who said they couldn't. You, you Gentiles eat all that meat. How can you, how can you, how can you be, claim to be a Christian and eat meat? Are you with me? Yeah. So these are, are these doubtful things, the things that God has neither prohibited nor commanded. There's a large area of, of uh, human practice that's left open to us. In Deuteronomy, God told Israel where and when to go to the bathroom and how. Are you with me here? Who do you tell where, when, and how to go to the bathroom? Children. Children. But Paul says in Galatians he's treating us as adults. So my mother said to me when I was 13, Jim, go to the bathroom. Unfortunately, the way I say I have to go to the bathroom is I have to go to the bathroom. Yes. So when she said, Jim, go to the bathroom, I didn't need to, so what did I say? I don't have to go. Well, she was, she was in a toot because we were leaving on vacation and Mother was almost omnipresent in the house when we were leaving on a big trip. <laughs> She's in every room unplugging and checking windows and locks and all the things, yes. And she's breezing. I was 13. Clueless, standing in the middle of the living room. Mother breezed by and she said, Jim, go to the bathroom. I said, I don't have to go to the bathroom. She said, don't tell me you don't have to go. (laughs) By then I did, by the way. (laughs) As I've I've told you, she had a black belt in spanking. Uh, So (laughs) I said, I mean, I I can't. I don't need to. (laughs) Uh, Um. But, she, but, but, you know, she died, what, what is this, 2018? She died seven years ago, and she, in, in, the, in the, huh? Yeah, 2011. Um, she died seven years ago, and in, the, in those last many years of her life that God gave her, she never told me to go to the bathroom again. Why not? I, when I was 50, she never called up, Jim, go to the bathroom. Uh, why not? Because she didn't need to. I was grown up. Are you with me here? And that's the issue that's going on here in Romans 14 and 15. Let's go back to chapter 12 and at least get a start in it. Jim, you'll be in age someday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you for that word of encouragement. Uh, so chapter 12, 1 and 2. You, you, you know these verses, most of you, for years. Uh, Chuck said some years ago, don't remember whether it was at Christmas or Easter, uh, when you're at one of these major holidays, the only thing you can do, the only right thing to do is, is go one of the passages that talks about it. 
But after, as Chuck, how old is Chuck, 80? 83. 83? After all these years of ministry, there's hardly any passage on the resurrection, hardly any passage on Christmas he hasn't spoken on. And he said, it's awfully hard to, to speak on famous passages. And that's true. I, I haven't faced it as long as he has, but it really is a problem. So how do you deal with a famous passage? Well, let's look at it carefully here. We've got some things I think that we can say that will be helpful to you. Your text, what's the first verb in verse 1? Verb. Urge. That's a good train. Pardon? Plead. What does plead imply as opposed to urge? Beg. Beg. What does that imply? Yeah, and also there may be some unwillingness in the the, uh, audience. Yes? Um, maybe that would be the case here, so beg might be right. Um, plead, urge is an awfully good translation at this point. I, he has some things to urge upon them. He's never been to Rome, but looking at chapter 16, there are a lot of people he knows there, uh, Twenty over 20 people that he knows in Rome. <clears throat> and so likely he's gotten some kind of information. Um, and so with that information that he's received, he knows he needs to write to them, chapters 1 to 11, so that he can address the problems that he's been alerted to in the church. Does this make sense to you? So he says, I plead with you, I urge you, therefore, brothers. Therefore, what does therefore mean? I can't hear you. Something's before it. Something's before it, and... And what's the relationship of this material to what went before? Yeah, this is the conclusion. Here are the, here are the things that you need to know in light of what I've been saying. How far back does the therefore go? How, about, how far back does it reach? Yeah, all the way back. So I, I uh, beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. <clears throat> what are the mercies of God? Or perhaps, perhaps we should read it here as, as some of the commentaries are saying. I think they're right by the mercy of God. It is plural in Greek, but there's, there are reasons for that that would not mean it's plural. So, so I beg you by the mercy of God. What mercy of God? What are we talking about? What was the chapters 1 to 11. Observe, I've got two references to chapters 1 to 11. So in effect, when I come to verse, verse 1 of chapter 12, I need to stop and rehearse chapters 1 to 11 in my mind. So chapter 1, what are we like? Well, it's pretty bad. The uh, wrath of God, we rest under the wrath of God apart from Christ. It remains upon us. And that wrath of God is turning us over to more and more sin. Yes? In chapter 2, that's true even of the self-righteous. Is that relevant to this section, 12 to 15? How is it relevant? Okay, how is it relevant? Faithfully position Yeah, I think somehow that my practice of eating or not eating meat is commending me to God and I'm better than you. But he takes away all the claims of the self-righteous in chapter 2. There aren't, 
There aren't, the only self-righteous people are under the wrath of God. So when you're very pleased with what you're doing that's pleasing God and gaining you a hearing that you're not that nobody else is getting, amen. <laughs> then you just remember you're under the wrath of God. In chapter 3, he extends that to, to Jewish believers equally. And then he has that quotation list, verses 10 to 18. Which is true, as he says, it's true about Jews, but if it's true about Jews, it's true about all the rest. There is none righteous, not even one. Yes? And the reason in 1018, I'm sorry, in uh, 318 is there is no fear of God before their eyes. People who are looking at their own righteousness and very pleased with it and using that as a, as a platform to look down on others are people who, who really have no fear of God. But God has taken all that away. So 3, 19, and 20, um, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world held guilty before God. If Israel is guilty, <laughs> all the rest are. Because by the works of the law, there shall, so shall no flesh be justified in his sight, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. And we thought maybe when we were there, um, the knowledge of sin was awareness of, of what sin is, but Romans 7 disabuses us of that idea. I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But it's not awareness of what covetousness is. I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in, in me every kind of covetousness, for without the law sin is dead. So can I use the law for righteousness? This was the question. I'm, I, I, I was delighted to hear um, Steve this morning cite Martin Lloyd-Jones, because J- Lloyd-Jones saved me in Romans 7. I didn't know how to deal with Romans 7 until I read just the introduction to his book on it. He says, the only question Paul is asking is, can the Christian life be lived by law? Can the Christian life be lived by law? And, his, and Paul's answer, or Lloyd-Jones's answer is, and Paul's answer is no. So can my meat or abstaining from meat Give me unusual status with God? Well, no. I don't know the time frame, but I've heard it was 11 years from the time Peter got the dream with the sheets coming down, what to eat, what not to eat, before he said anything to the church about it. Oh. It was a long period of time from yeah. the time he got the vision to when... I guess it was a conversation with Paul. There was some time, but I don't know how, what kind of time. Uh, Eleven is probably too long. Uh, from, um, I, I, I think it's probably too long, but I, I can't say actually how long it was. I don't know exactly when the Acts 15 event occurred, um, so it's kind of hard to know all those things. It's, it's just so, what he's doing here, I'm, I'm trying to think, it's so hard. He's talking Jews, or is he talking to? He's, he's talking supposedly to people who are born again. Yes. <laughs> and, and he's so, telling yeah, them that their obedience cannot gain them righteousness with God. They got the Holy Spirit to help them understand what he's trying to mm-hmm. say. But he's basically <laughs> come along saying, "You guys got it all wrong." Yeah. 
I have a I had an, a mentor in Memphis who was one of the most optimistic men I ever knew. I was just in, is that right, Jen? Yes. Yeah. I, and it, it nearly killed him. It really ne- nearly killed him. He believed if he simply confronted the people of God with the word of God, they would immediately embrace it and start practicing it. And there was a man in our church at the time who was going around uh, in restaurants in Memphis taking up money to, to pay off Dr. Clapp, uh, his, his contract as pastor, on the condition that he and his wife and all of his family all three of his children and their families would leave the church and never come back. <laughs> uh, th- th- this same man stood up in a business meeting one, ch- one night. It was a Baptist church, so business meeting. So stood up in a business meeting and he said, well, what Dr. Clapp is teaching is, the, is what the Bible teaches, but we're not going to do it here. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw a lightning strike in such a situation. <laughs> I sure was afraid we was going to that night. Uh, uh, Dr. Clapp just lived in, in confidence that the people of God would immediately respond. But they don't. Neither did Peter. So that the Acts 15 event, I think, must precede Galatians chapter 2. Otherwise, in, in Galatians chapter 2, uh, Peter and Paul are up in Antioch, and they're eating with Gentiles. Do you remember this? Um, and when people came from James, Peter withdrew and wouldn't eat with them anymore. Well, if Acts 15 is before that, um, why, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Acts 15 must be after that. If it's after, if it's before, if Acts 15 is before Galatians 2, then the people from James can't intimidate Paul, uh, Peter. If it's after, Peter's already had the vision. I don't know how long. I wish I did. I'd, I'd love to know that. But, but Peter's already had the vision, but still hasn't seen all the, all, all the significance of it. Hasn't understood it. And so he has to grow too. If Peter has to grow, all the rest of us have to grow. So chapter 3 then. Yes, Fred? Jim, uh, referring to people from James, what was James' position in the church with uh, he was a leader. No, he was just a leader. I don't know what his position was. The text never tells us. So, yeah, the category pastor is absent from scripture. I'm sorry. I just I, I teach at a seminary and I teach things like this. I, I simply have no place in the Bible that I know that teaches the office of a pastor. There is a gift of pastoring. But there's no office that I know of as a pastor. There's elders and deacons, but there's no office of, el- of pastor. So I don't know. He, he was a leader and a very influential leader, being half-brother of Jesus, of course. So, uh, so, so Paul turns then and says, but now, this is back to Romans 3, but now a without-law righteousness is revealed being testified by the law and the prophets. And that's what the rest of chapters five, uh, uh, 3 to 8 are about. I have to take away... Any status I can gain by my works before grace makes any difference. Um, so uh, Paul has taken that away in chapter 118 to 320. And then in 321, he starts now his constructive work, reconstructing. And then how do we relate to God? And first of all, it's on the basis of the work of Christ in the rest of chapter 321 to whatever the last verse is, 28 or so in 
um, uh, chapter 3. It's later than that, 29.30, something like that. And then in chapter 4, he will show us that the righteousness of God is available only to faith. Um, and so he proves that first by quoting the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, quoting from Genesis and from Psalms. And then he explains the difference between faith and works in the, in the middle part of chapter uh, 4. And the latter part of chapter 4, he gives us an illustration of what that faith looks like in the birth of Isaac, in Abraham and, and Sarah um, siring Isaac. Are you with me here? Uh, but that is only the first part, chapters 1 to 4. 5 through 8 then, so 1 to 4 are about righteousness by faith. 5 to 8 are about the life of those who are right with God by faith. So in chapter 5, it's a life of, um, of uh, joy. It's a life of peace with God. It's a life of boasting in the hope of the glory of God. It's also a life of boasting in suffering. Um, and that doesn't seem appropriate, but, but don't you realize um, how deep we were in sin and how hard it is to go, it's, it's going to have to be to break out of it? We really don't see that. We had a student in Memphis who had uh, muscular dystrophy, I think. <clears throat> I can't remember exactly what he had. Um, couldn't speak very well, except when he preached, and then you could hear him plainly. It was amazing. Uh, just unusual thing. And he was a good preacher, too. Um, and I said to him one day, he, he and I had a, an unusual relationship. He'd come into my office frequently, and we'd talk. I said, are you in pain? He said, oh, yeah. I said, has it been all your life? He said, yeah. Folks, somebody who's been in pain all his life doesn't know any normal except pain. Yeah? You don't know how good good feels until the pain's finally relieved. You and I hardly know pain. Many of us hardly know pain. Um, but I will remind you of the old Excedrin commercial, no headache is small when it's yours. <laughs> yes, so I can't despise anybody else's pain, but, but if you had nothing but pain in all of your life, and suddenly it was all done away with, how good would good feel? You know, The problem for us is we're so deeply in, enmeshed in sin when we come to the Lord, he doesn't break all those bonds immediately. He doesn't he can't? If he did, we wouldn't know how to live. We'd probably lose our minds. Uh, so he takes us out little by little, edge eases us out, and the things that I used to love, I don't love much anymore. And the things that I still love, I'm finding reasons not to love. Are you with me? And it's painful. I don't like that. I don't want all my loves to change. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and if you, as I understand it, if you actually break the cocoon and let the, the insect out, the insect's actually stunted. It doesn't have the strength. Um, so chapters 5 to 8 are going to focus on two large issues. One is um, reconciliation, and so reconciliation uh, uh, figures large up to about 
chapter 5, verse 11. Of chapter 5, verse 11. But then he turns to a problem that arises. Um, how, can, how can we really have, in our sinfulness, how can we in fact have such a relationship with God? And the answer is going to be in the latter part of chapter 5, the way you got into it um, and the way you get out of it, the way we got into it. I didn't sin and thus become a sinner. I was born a sinner. There's not much way out of that. Unless I have a new identity, a new connection. So I'm in Adam, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all sinned. And then he says again in 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ all shall be made alive. So when I come, when I leave the solidarity group, Adam, I must join a new group, and that new group is I'm no longer in Adam, I am in Christ. As a friend of mine in Memphis said, a lot of us think that we're in Adam in Christ, hyphenated all the way across. <laughs> no, I'm not in Adam anymore. I don't share Adam's character, and I don't share Adam's destiny. I'm in Christ. I have the potential. I have the hope. I have the confidence that I will, in fact, share the character of Christ, and I will, in fact, share his destiny, but he will build that in me. It's not immediate, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that when, when uh, he came, he said, when I came to you, I could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to, as to fleshly. Then he defines that fleshliness as to babies in Christ. Is, is your son's name Herman? Henry. Thank you. I knew it was an H and there was an R in there someplace. But Henry. Henry's a baby. How old is he? Two, two and a half months. Is he walking yet? Dumb kid, what's wrong with him? Is he talking yet? Boy, he must be really problematic. I don't know how you live with this. That's why the Marines want him. <laughs> Start at the beginning, training right. <laughs> a baby is a baby, and you don't expect of a baby what you expect of an adult. Yes? A baby, the one thing we know about all babies is that they're going to be messes because we lay in diapers to take care of that. Amen? Yes? No. But you see, if I am reborn into a new family, um, so Jesus calls it new birth in John 3, Paul calls it reconciliation in Romans 5. If I'm reborn into a new family, if I'm transformed out of, out of, transferred out of Adam into Christ, then I start not immediately with all the fruit of the Spirit. I start at, start at the beginning manifesting real life in Christ, and I start maturing and growing, and in that growth and maturity, over time, there comes um, obedience. How obedient is Henry now? Pretty good. Pretty good. So you can, you can tell him to do things, and he will do them, right? No, not ever. Come on now, he's two and a half. So... <laughs> So, so the point is that I don't even understand the commandments of, of, of the scriptures very well when I'm a newborn. 
but I start growing, and I do have the Holy Spirit's ministry. And as I have the Holy Spirit's ministry, one of his jobs is to teach me the fatherhood of God. That's chapter 8 of Romans. And one of his tasks is to build into me, in fact, maturity and help me grow up so that I begin to express the life of Christ in one way or another, uniquely. Uh, we're all apparently going to have new names, and I wonder what they're going to be in heaven. Uh, I wonder if each of us is not a diamond being polished to reflect just exactly the aspect of God's character that God wants, and, and that that aspect of his character may be our new name. I don't know. I just wonder about these things. Solomon uh, versus Jedediah. Yeah. Yeah. Solomon versus Jedediah. So chapter uh, 5 then is taking us in that direction, but chapter 6 has to raise the question. It sounds, Paul, like you're saying that the law actually actually is sin. And so in 6 and 7 he's saying, no, I don't say that at all. But it's sin that uses the law. And you can't break that nexus except from death or apart from death. Only in in death and resurrection do we break the connection between indwelling sin and the law. Then I can use the commandments of God for righteousness because I'm free. I'm still struggling in my freedom right now. I haven't grown up enough to be as free as I will be when I have experience resurrection from the dead are you with me here uh but but that's coming then in chapter eight he returns and talks about there is therefore now no condemnation he's talking about reconciliation again and then in the latter part of chapter eight he talks about suffering and its role why should people who are at peace with god suffer because we don't know how deep in sin we are we don't know how hard it's going to be to get out of it And we don't know how hostile the world's going to be to people who are growing in the righteousness of Christ. And so we have enemies all around. They they used to do the the um, what was that Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory at Dallas Seminary, and I had Frank Minrith for a professor one semester, and he said uh, uh, an awful lot of Dallas Seminary students. We were virtually all men at that time. He said. A lot of Dallas Seminary students score high on effeminacy and paranoia. Well, that's encouraging. Where'd, we hire, where'd, these, where'd these profs come from? Uh, uh, and he said, effeminacy because you like to, to sit and read. And paranoia because you think you have an enemy. It ain't paranoia if you got an enemy. <laughs> yes, so we do in fact have an enemy. So we have to be taught that all things work together for, the, for good to those who love God. Don't ever tell somebody in the midst of suffering that. It, it's, it, it's just a hammer in their face. Don't tell them that. They may well know it. You can tell them that later. When they've seen the good, you can tell them that later. But in fact, all things do work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to the purpose. And the reason for that is, and that's 28, the the reason for it's in 29 of chapter 8. God, I can't quote it, it's too Calvinistic. (laughs) Whom whom the Lord... 
He also did to be conformed to the image of his son. Folks, you are, it is God's purpose and plan to make you into the image of Christ. Because you are finite and he is infinite, then you can't reflect his whole character, so maybe that facet will be your name. What will it be? I'm, I'm anxious to hear these things. And when we hear those names, will we not think, oh, that's perfect. That's of course, exactly. Uh, uh, I tell you now, wouldn't that be great to hear him? Now, let me tell you what I've learned since I got here. Uh, um, but that's chapter 8. Then chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is there any real hope? You tell me that there's no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Israel is, yeah. But that's only temporary. It's not permanent. So in chapter nine, uh, chapter 11, and thus, and this way, by this method, all Israel will be saved. By taking the gospel away from them, giving it to the Gentiles to, to create jealousy in Israel. And as we said in the last week or two, they're sure jealous of us, aren't they? Because yeah. we've been living the same way they live, by works and not by faith and by grace. We haven't come to enjoy the riches that are ours in Christ. So Paul can say in Ephesians 1, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And now with my new car, I really am blessed. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I, I uh, took it to my, uh, my uh, repair shop to get the uh, state inspection done, and they talked about my new silver bullet. <laughs> it's a little silver Mazda Miata. So, oof, goodness, I'm enjoying this car. But the but but you know the Mazda shouldn't have anything to do with my sense of the great spiritual blessings because I don't understand them. Then it does. Are you with me? What I need to do is be so enmeshed in the spiritual blessings that have been given to us in Christ. That I start enjoying them and living in the in the in the pleasure, the the real pleasures of God, and in living in those pleasures, become an object of envy to Israel. And so he says, "Oh, the greatness of the of the wealth, both of the rich, uh, of the uh, wisdom and knowledge of God." Remember that passage that we ended with last week. Now he comes to verse one. I beg you. I urge you. There's that word urge. So the word parakaleo, you've heard this before. Uh, it means to comfort, it means to encourage, and it means to um, um, ask urgently. I want to show you one place where it's used. It's used in Philemon. That's a hard book to find, but if you turn to Hebrews and one book left, you'll have it. Philemon uh, 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, remember what this book is about. This Philemon is the owner of a slave named Onesimus who ran away. Under Roman law, this is a Greek man in a Greek city, so he would not necessarily be practicing Roman law, and the Greeks were known for being more, let me say it differently, less ruthless with their slaves than Romans were. But under Roman law, at least, he had the absolute right of life and death over the slave. Okay. 
Wherefore, having much boldness in Christ to command you what is appropriate, because of love, I rather... Uh, verse 8, verse 9 now. Because of love, I rather appeal. Same word that's in Romans. See, he's an apostle, and as an apostle, he has the right to command. Yes? Uh, so he says in 1 Corinthians 14, If anyone is a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I've written to you is the commandment of God. And if anybody is ignorant, he will be He will be ignorant. But when he uses this word, what does it mean? I beg, I urge, I plead. It's, it's, an, it's an expression of love. I, I, having much authority, much boldness in Christ to command what is uh, uh, appropriate because of love, rather I urge, being such a one as I am, the old man, and now also the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he says it again, verse 10. I, I urge you for the sake, about my child, whom I have begotten in my bonds, Onesimus, him who was formerly unprofitable to you, but uh, but he's uh, 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 but now is profitable, whom I have sent back to you, him that is my very heart. Are you with me here? So, when he says what we usually translate or read from the King James, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, the idea is he's urging them because of his love for them, not because he's an apostle and is laying down the law for them. He's urging them to a, to a, a, a path of behavior, a, 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 a growth in their spiritual lives. And he does it on the basis of all the mercies of God. If God saved me, a sinner... There is none righteous, not, not even one. There is no one who understands. They have together become useless. Yes? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. If that was true about me, if I'm the kind of person that he described in Romans 3, 10 to 18, and he accepted me, did, did, did you, you didn't see that. We didn't look at it. Turn back to Philemon. I just found it once. I have to look it up a second time. Uh, um, verse 17. If, you, if therefore you hold me as a partner, what? How? As you would welcome me. That's, by the way, that word welcome is, is the words used in Romans 15.7. What kind of welcome would Paul get at Philemon's house? Yes. Uh, there are people who come to, your, come to your house and you see them walking up the walk and you realize they're not even welcome on my, on my porch. Yes? And there are poor people who are acceptable on the porch but not in the entryway. Yes? And there are some who are acceptable in the entryway but not in the living room. Yeah? There are people who are welcome in the living room and probably the kitchen, just because of the way our houses are laid out, uh, who are not really welcome anyplace else in the house. Yes? 
There are people who are welcome all through the house. What kind of welcome would Paul have gotten at Philemon's house? Same, yeah, he's family. He is an honored guest. He's a guest who you cannot believe would, would come to your house. Um, and you want him to have, feel free in your home. Yes? Well, I, I, I beg you, receive one another as Christ received you. Are you with me? For the glory of God. The, the point is, then, I must be as free in my forgiveness as I was freely forgiven. I must be as free in my merciful response as I have received mercy. I must be as free in the grace I extend to others as I have received grace from God. And so... What he's saying here in Romans 12, this is the right kind of worship. Do you notice there, do you have at the end of verse 2, which is your reasonable worship? What do you have? Service of worship or something like that? This word is used, um, and, this word group is used 106 times in the Old Testament in the translation, Greek translation. 83 of them stand for a verb uh, that means to do the, the service of worship at the tabernacle. Spiritual service? Yeah. Well, the word spiritual is addressing a different word in the text, actually. So um, this worship. This is our worship, folks. I, I want you to notice at least here that singing isn't part of it. Because it really doesn't matter what you sing if you're not reacting to the mercies of God in your life. It doesn't matter what kind of instruments are used. It doesn't matter whether you sing at church. If you're not doing this, the rest of it isn't re- really worth much. Am I making sense to you? Yes, no? Jim, it says reasonable service in the kingdom. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll deal with that when I get back into town, but right now I just want to focus on this issue. There are three ways that you show your service of worship to God in Romans 12 to 15. It's by not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think in verse 3. But how do I think more highly of myself than I ought to think? I think that I am going to church to get instead of to give. If your assumption is you go to church to to get, then you've got the wrong concept of what church is. And part of the reason we do what we do is that people won't do other things. Are you with me here? What we want is to pay some, you know, if you can't, if you don't have a ministry going on in the church, you hire somebody who can do it. Amen? Because there's nobody who cares about the youth as much as a person who has, has been hired and given a contract. Amen? Do you remember in your childhood, those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, the, time before, the time before youth directors is what I'm, you didn't let me get there. Uh, if you're old enough to remember the time before youth directors, there was no youth ministry in your church at all, right? Oh, yes, there was a youth ministry. It was parents who cared. 
wasn't always well done, but folks, pastoring's not always well done either. <laughs> Am I making any sense to you at all? So, so how do I think more highly of myself? Because I don't use my spiritual gifting in the body of Christ. And in 12.9 through 13.10, how do you make your body a, live, a spiritual uh, offering, a sacrifice of worship? By loving without play acting. And in 14.1 to 15.13, how do you make your body a living sacrifice? By accepting people who differ with you over the way the Christian life ought to be lived. We'll come back and look at this in more detail in verses 1 and 2 and then go in on, on to verses 3 to 8. But it seemed to me right now to, to advance us very much further in, in a month when I get back. The next Sunday I will be back is the 25th of March. So it's a month exactly till, from today. <laughs> so I figured you're not going to remember what Chuck even talked about last week. Right? Why would you remember what I talked about a month ago? So, uh, I might need to play it again. It is recorded, and we'll, I, I failed to do that last week, but I didn't this. So uh, here, is, here is the call. Here is where we're headed with chapter 12 to 15. The whole point is to learn to make your body a living sacrifice because that's what we're about. Is there suffering in that? Yeah, you better believe it. But remember, we don't realize how deep we are in sin, how much pain it's going to be to get out of it. Yes? And how much good. And this is the thing I, I constantly struggle with. That the good of the suffering in the end is really so much more worthwhile than the good of avoiding the suffering. Let's close with prayer. Father, uh, I take courage from the fact that faith, that Peter struggled to understand these things. If he didn't understand them, I'm probably going to struggle to understand them. And it was hard for him to take the, rebu- the, the rebuke from Paul that day in Galatians 2. I'm confident of that. It had to have been hard. But at least it appears that he, that he accepted it, took it to heart, and started living out the grace that is your grace, the grace that will cause Israel jealousy as they come to see that grace at work in us. So, Father, work that grace in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Yeah.